Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Good morning, everyone. This week on the podcast, I speak to naturopath and women's health expert, Alexandra Middleton, about endometriosis. We discuss the etiology of the disease, what places a woman at increased risk, what factors outside of diet and lifestyle that impact on symptoms, and the diet and lifestyle treatments that can help a woman with endometriosis, including supplements that Alex regularly uses in her clinic. We also discuss the environmental factors that impact on the progression of endometriosis. Alex shares her own journey as to how she got interested in the field and what led her to become one of the foremost experts in both women's health and, of course, endometriosis. Alexandra Middleton is an experienced natural medicine clinician with over 10 years of experience in helping women optimize their hormones and reproductive health. And her mission is to show women with endometriosis how to get their quality of life back through the combined power of natural, environmental, and conventional medicine. Alex's approach is grounded in the principles of both naturopathic and evidence-based medicine. She is passionate about incorporating the latest research into her clinical practice and recently co-authored a 2021 paper published in the peer-reviewed journal of alternative and complementary medicine. Alex also works extensively with the medical community because she believes collaboration is the best way to ensure positive outcomes for her clients. Working closely with specialists in gynecology, endocrinology, fertility and general practice, she uses functional pathology testing and environmental assessments to ensure her clients get the correct medical diagnosis. And Alex and I discuss that diagnosis sort of criteria within our conversation today too. This is key in her treatment plans that include advice around therapeutic dietary strategies, lifestyle advice, and nutritional supplementation. Outside of her clinic, Alex is a passionate advocate for her industry and supports lobbying activities through her work at the Australian Traditional Medicine Society, ATMS. Here, she also runs Australia's largest continuing professional education program for fellow practitioners who, like her, want to stay on top of the science. She is a wealth of information, Alex, and you can absolutely hear that uh, throughout our conversation today. And you can touch base with Alex through her website, alexandramiddleton.com.au, and over on Instagram at Alex M Nutrition, both of which we have included in the show notes. Before we kick off into the interview, I'd just like to announce that actually, come 2023, Wikipedia is going to have some mini Monday Mickey episodes where I spend 15 to 20 minutes either speaking short 
course conversations with experts around a range of topics or just sharing practical nutrition tips because actually that's what a lot of you follow me for so in an effort to just provide more value and more quality information we are going to start releasing these short form episodes in January 2023 so absolutely look out for them Until then, of course, the best way you can support the podcast is to subscribe at your favourite podcast platform where you listen to Wikipedia. That way, more people are able to discover and connect with the experts that I interview. So that would be amazing if you were to do that. Thank you so much. Alex Middleton, naturopath and uh, nutritionist. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today to chat uh, about um, particularly endometriosis, which I know is your, uh, where you spend a lot of your time. But of course, you also talk about gut health and and hormone health in general. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Can we kick off by getting you to tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into the field of uh, naturopathy, but particularly endometriosis as well? Okay, great. So um I originally got into natural medicine, you know, I'm the daughter of a national champion swimmer from the 60s and even way back then they were shoving supplements down their throat so I've grown up with it and uh, by the time I hit 22 I had endo and for 10 years got gaslit by doctors and basically went on my own journey just trying to find out what would help me get symptom relief. You know, and so I eventually met a nutritionist in a park who introduced me to the world of naturopathic nutrition and ended up leaving financial services to do what I'm doing now. And I suppose um, I generally, you know, see women with all sorts of reproductive and hormone issues, but endo I think I see a lot of because it's basically been a big part of my own journey. And, you know, I, I do know how you can get better from my personal experience. So I just try to help women that way. Okay, and of course, we're going to go into, you know, what is endometriosis, what are the symptoms, and what are some of the, um, obviously, you know, the solutions to help women. But I do want to pick up on what you just said, that, you know, you spent 10 years with endometriosis, yet it wasn't recognized by the medical profession. What is it about endo that means that it is either misdiagnosed or missed? Because I hear this a lot. Yeah. So I, I suppose I'd preface it with saying the diagnosis is better than it's ever been. <laughs> um, you know, back in the 40s, I'm sure my my maternal grandmother had it. She had similar issues and they used to call it guitar of the womb, which means stickiness of the womb. And the treatment for that was electric shock therapy to the head <laughs> to get the, you know, to reduce pain and get cycles going again. Um, so I think the diagnosis is getting better. I think the real, the issue is, well, two or threefold. The biggest thing is there's a massive disconnect between what information is available to us in the research and what it, mainstream medicine is aware of. Um, there is some stuff that doctors are aware of which isn't like screening for particular infections, for example, that might be contributing, which isn't written to the national guidelines, so they're not necessarily screening for it. Uh, and I think the third part, just from my own personal experience, I work a lot with the medical community, but I come from a family of GPs. Um, GPs, you know, they're expected to know everything. Yes. <laughs> and they're, you know, 
whereas the Japan and Master of All Trades would have been expression is, and they spend 15 minutes with each client and they're incredibly time poor and the time that they have is at lunchtime for 10 minutes is generally spent with a pharmaceutical rep. So they, I just think the information, they don't have the time or the brain space to get all the information. Um, and historically, especially in Australia and all the Western world, you know, endometriosis, you know, considered a women's health issue, hasn't been given a lot of research funding we thanks to endometriosis australia and some other advocates we did get 50 million plus so that's all being dispersed throughout research over the last three or four months um so there hasn't been a lot of funding either but yeah there's just generally a lack of diagnosis and the other thing is is doctors have generally as very generally speaking told women that you know painful heavy periods are normal where then uh, sorry that where they're not normal they're common and there's a difference between normal and common. Um, and if you have, you know, if you're healthy, you shouldn't be getting, you know, any of the any endometriosis symptoms or any sort of period related symptoms. It should be just coming and going. Yeah, um, that's just not the common thing these days. Alex, when I um, chat to women who are my age and they're sort of mid forties, like I still talk to women who have. Um, you know, they're sort of beyond their um, reproductive years in light of them wanting to have children. They're still, you know, within um, the scope of being reproductive, but they're not, you know, not wanting to have children or anything like that. And they are now having sort of symptoms around endo, which they might not have either uh, been diagnosed or been aware of when they were earlier. But I imagine that they would have been present sort of earlier. And I just so can we actually, well, first maybe can we kick off with you just telling us what is endometriosis and how is it diagnosed? Okay, so um, endometriosis, otherwise referred to as endo by the endo world. Um, so it's a condition where cells that are similar to, to that that line the uterus, which is called the endometrium, they grow in other parts of the body. And what happens is with the hormone fluctuations that come along at puberty, that would go up and down, those that tissue swells like it would in your womb and goes on to cause things like, you know, pain, fatigue, infertility, and you know, and other symptoms. And so it's the that endometrial tissue outside that goes wandering in the other parts of the body that's known as, you know, what surgeons will refer to as lesions or implants. That they're the things that are causing the problem. And they can be, you know, big like a small apple and they can be the size of a pinhead, which is why it's not always and in terms of diagnosis, the gold, I mean, there's a bit more discussion happening around this at the moment, but the gold standard is a laparoscopy. So that's, you know, keyhole surgery where they're, you know, having a look in to see what they can find. Um, but really there are, you know, certain blood biomarkers you can get GPs to screen for and comorbidities to screen for too. Um, and also a very particular type of ultrasound, um, which isn't done well by the mainstream. In Sydney, where I live, for example, there's really only one chain of ultrasound care clinics that, you know, they're women-focused. They know exactly. So the scan's called a deep endometrial scan, and it's done at a particular time of the cycle. You know, it's done with an, with an empty bowel, um, and it's internal. And the reason for the empty bowel is so they can, you know, check for deep infiltrating endometriosis, which is where endometriosis is so severe that it grows in and around other organs of the body. The bowel is a particularly common one. Um, but you've also got superficial endometriosis, which is the most common form. It's about 70% of all endo cases. And then ovarian endometriosis, which um, 
also known as endometriomas. They're like these little chocolate liquid-filled cysts in the ovaries and they can sit there and cause severe pain too. Um, so, yeah, the gold standard is surgery. But the problem with, you know, just having surgery as um, for diagnosis is just the act of cutting into skin or tissue you run the risk of creating scar tissue, right, which can form adhesions, which can then, you know, contribute to all the other endo symptoms. And so it becomes this chicken and egg cycle. Um, and surgery definitely, definitely has its place. It's just a matter, you know, about, about being smart about it with timing and things like that. So surgeons, a lot of surgeons in Australia, for example, they're really pushing back on surgery to a lot of women that I see who are between 20 and 35 saying try anything else but surgery because they know that you can get into this loop of surgery for pain relief and that can cause other issues later like you know issues with implanting an egg and infertility and things like that so yeah it's and I'm, I'm hoping it's going to change and progress a bit more with some more cash behind us but we'll see okay interesting and so you mentioned the the presence of lesions and that they can be of varying size and that um so is it the lesions themselves that cause the issue or is it some sort of reaction or or something that occurs that makes them flare up or or something like that it depends what you mean by issue if you're talking yeah, yeah. about the pain and the fatigue and that big inflammatory sort of picture yeah, it's the swelling of the lesions that are following the up and downs of estrogen and progesterone, um, and, and they can cause pain, particularly, you know, if there's neural, so nerve involvement, where nerves either grow in or around those those lesions, um, that can cause a lot of different pain, particularly pain with um, the duodenal nerve and the sciatic nerve as well. Um, but that's generally what causes pain. But, you know, 25% of women or 20 to 25% in this country don't have any symptoms, especially pain, and can be absolutely riddled with it. Um, and those are the women that generally don't, they either find out when they go to have a baby and, you know, they try everything. Very often they go through their GP without screening them for endo properly, <laughs> you know, keeping in mind that infertility is, the, is number three in terms of symptoms for endo. Um, they don't screen them for endo properly. They send them off to an IVF clinic where they're put through repeated cycles of fertility treatments. And those fertility drugs, particularly the ones used for egg collection, are estrogenic in nature, which means ultimately they're going to you know, run a very high risk of making the endo worse. And so those women will, as a last resort, often then be recommended by the fertility specialist to have a laparoscopy, to have a look. And then they look and the, per the woman's, you know, rooted with endo, never knew it. They excise, which means to carefully cut away the endo, remove it, and they either go on to then have fertility, successful fertility treatments and sometimes even get pregnant on their own. Mm. It was just the endo getting in the way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the importance, especially at that GP level, it's definitely, yeah, it's getting better. Yeah. Um, but the symptoms themselves, I mean, endometriosis, in my view, after having had it for 30 years, I've had it really since I was 10, but I wasn't diagnosed until I was 20 and I'm now 42. It's really the manifestation of a whole lot of other things combined that are then manifesting as endometriosis. Um, now, doctors, doctors will, you know, especially the last 20 years, they describe it as an inflammatory disease. Inflammation really is an endpoint symptom. It doesn't talk about what's causing that inflammation. Um, they definitely talk about it as, you know, there's a hormone component, particularly with estrogen driving the disease. But 
really when you look at the research, there are so many other things that are just as important which are driving it. I mean, the big thing which is getting more and more research is immune dysfunction, which you've probably heard about. Yeah. So, you know, there's a dysfunction in the immune system. Um, there's a big microbial, so bacterial component uh, yes. about it. Um, there's a huge environmental component going on. Um in my opinion, it's not just a matter of too much estrogen with hormones. There's also a very big hormone depletion piece because it's very rare for me to meet a woman with endo who isn't running low on stress hormones, like adrenal hormones, because she's been ongoingly stressed for a long time, um, which then lowers her progesterone, which then gives you know increases the chance of the endo going up. Yeah. Um, so chronic stress and trauma, past and present, has a huge part to play. Um, and the environment, which is probably more than half of it, um, which we can talk about. So, you know, chemicals, things like parabens, even like on the east coast of Australia with the rain the last year or two, the rise in mould in people's houses and, you know, the, these poisons that mould spores breathe out called mycotoxins. Many women with endo have a gene where, unlike a normal person who doesn't have that gene, they breathe in those poisons but they can't breathe them out. They can't detox which is a common theme for women generally with endo. And that what that does is that stimulates a thing in the liver called aromatase to, to push estrogen up, which then can make endo worse. So these women who have that genetic predisposition living in house with water, water damage or even their cars, their office, whatever it is, all of a sudden their endo gets worse and they have no idea why, and it's because, you know, they've got mould. So, Alex, you mentioned the genetic predisposition is as an element that um, places a woman at increased risk. What other factors might place a woman at increased risk of of developing endo? Well, there's a very when you say genetic, there's a very big familial component. But just keep keeping in mind that I think when people think of gen- genetics, they think it's a it's your destiny, and it's not a destiny. Genes are turned on and off all the time by the environment. And I meet women all the time where two women in the family have severe endo, let's say sisters, two sisters have severe endo, but the third sister has no problems at all. <laughs> um, and so it's very often about what's turning those genes on and off and, you know, coming back to that environmental piece. Um, so what puts them at disposal of that? Trauma is probably the biggest thing that comes to mind. In, um, the research is catching up on that too. There's quite a bit of research around particularly sexual, physical and verbal trauma particularly when they're young. Um, but the highest risk factor actually for having endo is if your mother's mother had it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting so, because I imagine that at this uh, time of sort of endo and what we know about endo, we're probably not going to know whether our mother's mother had it because back then that doesn't sound to me like uh, there would have been a lot of knowledge around that stuff. Well, I think it depends um, what generation we're talking. But if you actually are, if you start talking without using the word endometriosis and your yeah. your grandma, your mum's mum starts saying, oh, yeah, I used to get painful periods and, yeah, I had a bit of trouble getting pregnant. And, you know, that's how they used to really push through. And so if you get them talking about what their period um, history was like for them, you can start to kind of pick up on the nuances. And, you know, if any of your listeners think maybe, oh, I have period problems, maybe I should get screened. I do have a guide on my website and part of that guide shows you how to ask your fam- ask your family the right questions so you can get a really good family history that you can then take to your GP. Nice. Um, yeah. How, 
young does this present in women? Um, it's getting younger and younger. <laughs> it's also getting older and older. <laughs> yeah, is, um, it, is it because of the increased expo- sort of environmental exposures and, and things that you're talking about? Is that why it's the, the... – Yeah, the research is inconclusive. That's my opinion is yes because, you know, if, so girls as young – I mean, the youngest I know is eight and another that's nine. Wow, um, wow. As, you know, yeah, yeah. So they're getting the, – and they're also getting their periods earlier, right, um, which probably has a little bit to do with the stress and the amount of estrogenic sort of toxins in the environment. But so they're getting them earlier. And so what happens is one of the theories about endometriosis is that an endometrial cell, when you're inside your mother's womb, rather than staying where it's meant to, goes wandering in other parts of the body and just hides there. And when you hit puberty, which, like I said, is getting younger and younger – you get this trigger of estrogen and progesterone, particularly estrogen, and that's when the, prop, the, the symptoms start to, you know, present themselves. Um, so, yeah, young as eight, but also there are women who haven't had a period in years and have issues with, you know, particularly things people think straight away oh, it has to be pain, but a lot of women don't have pain. They just have really severe fatigue. Yeah. Um, or they might have IBS, you know, or, you know, they might have other sorts of pain syndromes. So. There are definitely menopausal women that have it too, albeit, you know, endo symptoms are not as severe when your hormones aren't going up and down. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, definitely, yeah, eight, eight's the youngest I've seen. Yeah. Alex, can you just explain for the listeners why something like trauma could then have this subsequent flow-on effect for something like endo? Uh, so just to preface it with there's no research on this yet, but – in my own research so what happens is if you go through chronic stress or chronic trauma and trauma isn't just abuse trauma can actually be things like neglect or maybe your parents have to emotionally check out for some reason whatever it is that's really stressful to a little kid and when a, when a child you know kids don't really know how to self-soothe so their hormones that a hormone uh pattern that's getting set in their younger years particularly just before puberty Rather than their, their stress hormones just going up and down, up and down a little bit like it should, the extremities, the, the amount of stress they feel at a young age is high. And so what happens is they start to burn through their stress hormones, like you, most of you would have heard of cortisol, which you need to run away from a lion or a tiger, but you also need to get out of bed. And they start to burn through those earlier and quicker. And why that's relevant to, to women with endo, apart from the overall inflammatory response stress has on the body, um, you can that burning through cortisol. What happens is eventually that leads to something called adrenal insufficiency when you start to run low on your adrenal hormones, and that has a whole other subset of symptoms. But your when that happens, it start that your adrenal hormones essentially start to steal from your sex hormones like progesterone, which you need to you know stay fertile, but you also need to keep endo at bay. It starts to steal the, the ingredients so you can continue to run at those high levels of stress hormone. And so your progesterone slowly starts to go down and down and down. So, so a really common picture that I see is women that have had some sort of trauma, particularly when they were young, not always when they were young, but trauma or just chronic stress, chronic work, life stress, psychological stress, you know, physiological stress, like loaded with infections that the doctors have missed. And very often they've got low progesterone too much estrogen, estrogen metabolites going on in the liver, which could be feeding the endo, 
and they're feeling really tired and flat because their adrenal hormones are running low as well. So that's a super common picture. So that, that's probably why, but that's only my my um, theory. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense as you describe it. And so I'm just going to probably jump the gun a little bit and ask a really, I don't know, would progesterone help a woman with endo then? If, if Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the first thing just to um, explain, what a lot of doctors, when they say they're offering something like progesterone, and some, you know, sometimes they tell women that, you know, there's progesterone only oral contraceptive pills. They're actually talking about progestin, which is a synthetic hormone that actually acts more like testosterone in the body and definitely looks more like it under a microscope and cause all sorts of side effects like depression, anxiety, and weight gain and acne and things like that. What I'm talking about is bioidentical progesterone, which is made from wild yams. And it was actually way back when a naturopathic remedy that you could definitely buy over the counter, especially in places like America. Um, but now the pharmaceutical companies have jumped on because they realise how effective it is. It basically, bioidentical progesterone mimics um, mimics the shape and actions of your own progesterone. Um, so the brand name is called Prometrium. Otherwise, doctors can get it compounded by compound pharmacists. And even if a woman isn't on a blood test, and bloods aren't really particularly, they're just giving you a bit of an idea because all bloods are telling you is about your total progesterone. It's not, it, it's not telling you about how much of that progesterone is working. And women in endo, with endo are known to have a bit of what they call progesterone resistance, so it's hard to get progesterone into the cell to do what it needs to do. So even if your levels aren't low and you've got endo, yes, you're going to benefit absolutely. Um, and so I very regularly recommend that um, I'll write a letter to the GP for my clients and say, hey, would you consider giving them this, this dosage of providing progesterone for the second half of their cycle. And so, and progesterone is really anti-inflammatory. You know, if you take it orally, it really helps with mood and sleep in particular. If they can, put, you know, insert it vaginally, which has even better access for pain relief and things like that. So, so, yes, definitely. And there are, you know, certain herbs like chase tree, which some people know as Vitex, um, and that also can help your progesterone status. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. And then, then actually that does lead me to wonder, you know, how often uh, a teenager is going to the doctor with heavy periods. Cause I was actually just giving a talk at a school the other week and it came up, we were just talking about hormone health and we're talking about oral contraceptive pills. And one of the girls said, yeah, but I'm still having a period. And as we know, it's a withdrawal bleed, not a period. So, mm, yeah. you know, we, but, but of course, the conversation came about because I was saying, you know, you may well have heavy periods and your doctor may give you this, but in fact, it's not necessarily helping the situation. Do you see that, Alex, in your work? Are, are teenagers being offered it? How would, why would the, so the OCP effectively would shut down that heavy period. Would that impact on endo? in a like in like that would stop that high estrogen from sort of feeding it but it's not necessarily taking care of the problem because at some point that teenager will come off the OCP yeah, yeah. so what the pill so the, the doctors give it that what they're doing is the suppressing ovulation they're essentially putting a woman to a state of menopause which you know is effective for those hormonal swings so the symptoms aren't severe but it definitely doesn't eliminate the endo that's already there um whatever's there will sit there dormant and you know from my personal experience, I was one of those women who got put on the pill for a while, for a long time. Um, and 
ultimately, particularly if you want to have babies later on, rather than working on suppressing or hiding symptoms, sometimes it's worth the short-term pain for the long-term gain. So, you know, coming off the pill, which can sometimes be a little bit rocky for some people, but actually really start addressing the root causes of what manifested your unique endopresentation in the first place. Yeah. Um, and that's the only thing that's going to give you long-term symptom relief. It's also the thing that at the same time is going to enhance your fertility and your general cycle of ovulation. And the better, the longer someone ovulates in the studies, the longer they live. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's important for women <laughs> when you think of how many women have been on the pill the last 50 years. So, um, yeah, so the pill is used to suppress symptoms along with a lot of other drugs, um, but ultimately it's just putting off the inevitable and, you know, think especially if women want to have babies. Yeah, and before I move on to my next line of inquiry, um, Marine is another one I hear women go on for endo and for yeah. things. Is it working in much the same way that you've just described or what? Uh, so the marina, the difference between the marina and and the oral contraceptive pill is it's it's a lower dose of pure progestin and it's localized version. And listen, if you know if you have to pick one form of pretty safe contraception um, for someone that has endo, it's it's probably a marina. But I would just um, say just a couple of things. Number one, if you're thinking about getting any sort of IUD or a marina and you haven't had a baby insist that you're knocked out somehow when they put it in because a lot of doctors aren't doing it and it's very traumatic for women that haven't had a baby to have an IUD inserted. Um, I hear that story all the time. The second thing is um, marinas with some women with endo can cause more problems than not. They can make periods even heavier and cause more pain. It just depends on the person. Um, and then the third thing to consider again is, you know, at the end of the day, it's still secreting progestin, which is a synthetic hormone, which comes with its own side effects. So we're talking contraception, it's probably the safer one. But for me, I'm all about let's get to the root cause rather than trying to, you know, manage symptoms. But for contraception, it, like real safety, it's probably that. Okay. No, that's great. Thanks, Alex. And um, before we do get to some solutions which a woman can sort of look at to get to that root cause, I do want to just touch on a few things. And one of them are, you know, the the common comorbidities that present along with endo. And you mentioned how the the bowel tissue is often um, can be wrapped up in that with the lesions, with the endo lesions. Is, so gut health and gut-related issues, is this one of the more common comorbidities? And yeah, so, so first of all, um, what, you're to, what we were talking about before, deep infiltrating endo, that's when endo is wrapping itself or surrounding the outside of the bowel. Okay. What you're referring to, like IBS, which is a, technically a comorbidity of endo, um, that's inside the bowel, right? And so it, they're slightly different things. Um, in terms of comorbidities, I mean, pretty much every autoimmune disease I can think of has been related to endo in some way in all the studies that I've read, um, particularly things like celiac disease, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is autoimmune, um, low thyroid, um, even things like vulvodynia, um, hypermobility syndromes, right? So women, I've never met a woman with endo who isn't floppy, right, really bendy, and that can cause 
all sorts of issues with other referred pain like back, shoulder, neck pain as well. Cardiovascular disease, women with endo are at a much higher risk. Um, certain reproductive cancers, particularly ovarian. Um, and even things like melanoma and sun damage and, you know, there's been some really, I'm a really moly person, so I found it really interesting. There's quite a bit of research on, you know, women with endo at a much higher predisposition of having a lot of moles. Um, so there's a very, very long list of correlations. Well, that's super interesting, um, Alex. And you also mentioned, of course, you know, some of the, the um, things which worsen or sort of bring about the flare-ups of endo and the bacterial link. Can you just sort of talk to us a little bit about that? Like what's going on? Yeah. Um, so, and this is pretty well researched now too, they call it bacterial contamination. Basically, what it describes is an overload of pathogenic, you know, bad bacteria or neutral bacteria where there's too much of it starts to leak from the gut and it leaks into the peritoneal cavity, which is, the, you know, the trunk, your, your trunk, right, where your reproductive organ sits and it, it, that way can flare and feed the endometriosis lesions. And so probably the first test I'm doing with women with endo is I'm doing, you know, a private test on screening everything in their gut good, bad bacteria, viruses, worms, parasites, which isn't particularly um, researched, but easily over half of the women in Sydney I see with endo have some sort of parasite oh, wow. that's affecting things. And parasites release on a cyclical basis their own poisons, right, which can have the same sort of inflammatory effect. Um, and so those sort of bugs absolutely need to be taken care of straight up. Um, and sometimes natural medicines can help and sometimes you need specialised antibiotics, at which point I work with a couple of specialists to do that. Um, yeah, so bacterial contamination is a really big part of it. And what else can I is it so also with gynecological infections too, you know, they tend to be more viral, but a lot of those aren't written into the guidelines either. So screening for those sort of infections is also super important because a lot of them are related to and the, the pathog um, pathophysiology of endo, infertility, negative pregnancy outcomes, things like recurrent miscarriage and stuff like that too. Mm. And I also read, I think, Alex, something you'd written about thinking twice before using tampons or a moon cup if you've got oh, endo. Yeah. Can you, yeah, can you talk to us about that? Because that's news to me. So first, first of all, most women who have actual endo symptoms, most of them will naturally not want to use tampons, which is a good thing. Because yeah. tampons, the pressure they can create can increase your pain. Um, generally speaking, with tampons, so if then if you want to use a tampon, it needs to be organic because the bleach and the other dioxins, tampon, non-organic tampons are generally bleached in, are correlated in the studies to the development of endo. Um, in terms of moon cups, so if you actually research the, the the guidelines for a moon cup, a moon cup is meant to be, after it's been used, it's meant to be boiled for like five or six minutes at, at top temperature um, and then cooled in a clean place and then reinserted to make sure, you know, there are certain bacteria which can add to things like toxic the toxic shock syndrome, excuse me, um, that can hang around if it's not cleaned properly. And I've never met a woman that uses a cup that had any awareness of how she's meant to clean it. Most women are just using a cup, giving it a wash under the sink and popping it back up. And 
you know, especially when you go back to thinking what we were talking about with this bacterial component with endo from the gut, you know, it's it's not just in the gut, it's bacteria everywhere. And, you know, you don't want to be adding bacteria, um, you know, which could potentially be fueling the problem even more. So, yeah, the cups are a very bad idea, in my opinion, for everybody unless they're, you know, the guidelines are pro- properly followed. Yeah. Um, I understand the environmental aspect, but, yeah. Buy some period pants. Yes, I saw you recommend <laughs> that. And that yeah. a lot less admin involved in uh, yes. period pants. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alex, so you mentioned that you do this complete raft of sort of tests to test what's going on in the in the gut. Which tests do you use, if you don't mind sharing that? Just because I know there are yeah. a bunch of them out there that are user pays, so I'd love yeah, your I recommendation. Yeah, I use a complete microbiome map, and I use a lab in Melbourne called Nutripath. Um, there are lots of different labs that offer that test. Um, and that test, if it's with the right lab, they, why I like it is it's quite comprehensive and it does. they do use the right technology, PCR, to check for infections, which most doctors are still not engaging, even though they were using it for COVID. Um so, you know, very a really common story with bugs, like a woman can go to Bali, Thailand, Fiji, India, which is common in Australia, go on holiday, pick up a bug, have traveller's diarrhoea, maybe vomit, take the GP, if they go to the GP, might give them an antibiotic called flagell and it will subside symptoms for a while but it never really gets rid of the bug and they'll do a test but a doctor will do a test called a culture where they're kind of just looking for it under a microscope and it, these bugs are a thousand times more than a pinhead. You need to get the very tiny parts of it to be able to check if it's there. And so PCR technology is looking for parts as small as DNA fragmentation. Um, and so it's really it's really the only tech that you want to use to screen yourself, particularly for parasites. And so um, I'm always checking that. And obviously it tell, the, the cool thing about the microbiome map is it's telling me about, you know, especially the balance of the bad bacteria and that might help me use different sorts of natural medicines to to approach it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, like the bloods, you know, apart from the the PCR piece with the infections, even the bacterial piece, it's the gut, gut and testing, it's really dynamic. It's only just giving you a snapshot in time and you kind of just have to work with that along with the woman's symptoms. Yeah, no, that's great. And and you mentioned Nutripath over here in New Zealand, it's NutraSearch. So they're sort of like sister yeah. companies, if you like. Yeah. So I know that it's it's also available here. So outside of that, what else would you test? Uh, so the first thing I do is I try and work with their GP, which is always fun, getting them on side with a the natural therapist um, uh, to get comprehensive blood work because very often that's been missed. Um, the complete microbiome map, like we said, I at some point I'm always getting them to do a vagina microbiome, which again is a vaginal micro swab, uh, swab they do at home. They pop it in the post and they get the results later to check for infections like genital mycoplasmas and bacterial vaginosis. And it tells me a lot about their good stuff, their, you know, their healthy vaginal lactobacilli, which are absolutely crucial to having healthy levels in order to keep things in check. And I don't think I've ever seen a woman with endo with healthy lactobacilli levels. Um, and so I can use that to work with them with things like vaginal pre and probiotics and, you know, other tools in my um, natural medicine box. So, and then there are other functional tests, you know, checking someone's methylation profile. So how well this little process of methylation, which is the metabolism that goes on inside of every single cell that's responsible for things like your brain chemicals, your, you know, the formation of your immune cells, your ability to detox and your energy. 
Um, and that can get affected by stress and genetics as well. And everybody's got a unique profile and that's really easily treated as well with, with supplements. Um, and other things, checking someone's histamine is a huge thing with women with endo, usually super high. Yep. And often miss. So yeah, there's a plethora of tests. It really depends on the person. Um, if someone, I have a woman with endo that comes to me with a mouthful of amalgam fillings, you know, we're working on that and I'm, and I'm doing pre and post tests, you know, before the fillings are taken out and after the fillings are taken out and we've done some detox. You know, some women might present like they really have quite severe mold illness or what's called SEARS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which is definitely getting worse in this country with the rain. You know, in that case, you know, I might be, first of all, referring them to a building biologist to get their house or their working environment or car tested and assessed, um, but also doing, you know, certain urine profiles to see where they're at so I can measure at the beginning and measure at the end just to make sure that everything we're doing is actually working. Um, yes, yeah, so there's about 100 tests, but they're, they're the, probably the ones I use the most. Yeah, and it's such a raft of tests, Alex, and it's not cheap either. And I don't know what it's like. And I assume Australia and New Zealand are actually quite similar. Like, of course, you can get your bloods done at the doctor by paying a GP thing, but otherwise it's it's user pays. Do you feel that, like, you must have clients who come to you who, like, that's just outside of their means. And so does that change or are you pretty confident with the the things which we will talk about soon as to how to sort of maybe go about improving symptoms like are you still likely to see success doing the things that you might do outside of I, the listen, I, first of all I, I have this conversation I had this last night over dinner um even without everything I've talked to you about today the average woman with endo in Australia is spending 20 grand out of pocket on their disease amazing um you know and so to do this sort of deep work you know it's you do need some disposable income. There are certain tests, so the parasite test, for example, if someone can't afford the microbiomap, which is last time I checked, 370 Australian, which is a lot, you know, I might, if they really can't afford it, what I might do is I'll write back to the GP saying, listen, I know about this other mainstream lab in Sydney. I know that they can do PCR in a stool. Can you arrange it? And that might cost 50 bucks. And at least then I've got the parasites covered. The top 10. So there are certain things you can get around. Sometimes you can just, you know, get a good idea from symptoms and, you know, naturally treat stuff. But the thing is, sometimes you need, you know, a lot of the time you need like bioidentical hormones or antibiotics, whatever it is. Sometimes you need stuff from from the medical community that's, that's prescription. And to get that, you really need evidence to show the doctor. And because the doctors aren't across endo, let alone the, all these other tests, it really needs, you know, a piece of paper to go to them with, say, look at this result, here's the justification, you know, can you please give me this? Um, but there are ways of getting around it. You know, my dream is that everything's mainstream and complementary medicine start to merge a bit more. Yeah. Totally, totally appreciate. And so, you know, a woman might go and get surgery does that just keep symptoms at bay? Does it do the does the endo sort of um, tissue flare up again? Do they need to think about the the other aspects that that we'll go on to talk to that can improve? Like, does surgery fix it all? Basically, is what I'm asking. Surgery, someone with severe symptoms and severe endo, if it's ovarian or deep infiltrating endo, which is like thirty percent, thirty to forty percent of the cases. Last time I read, they will get good relief from surgery, and it depends on what was driving it in the first place. Sometimes it can be relief for a year, sometimes it could be for four. Um, those with superficial or what they call peritoneal endometriosis, 
the latest research says that surgery actually doesn't help that endo very much. And so those women, you know, think, they all think surgery is the answer, but actually the research shows it's actually not going to help you too much. It does give you relief. Um, it definitely gives you pain relief. But ultimately it's going to come back if the things that caused it in the first place haven't been addressed. Um, and I suppose that's why I de- went down the naturopathic medicine road having come from a family of very traditional doctors, (laughs) um, the biggest thing that I love about naturopathic medicine is we we look for the root cause and we treat the body as a whole rather than compartmentalising the body like conventional medicine does. Um, That way of of treating is is just so limited because it's just not how the body works. Um, And so, yeah, the endo will, if everything that was driving the endo is still around, it's going to come back, yeah. Okay. So can we now then, Alex, talk about some of the lifestyle things which could help improve a woman's endo? And I know that some of them will be sort of, um, uh, will just confirm what you've talked about with environmental exposures and stuff like that. But, you know, what are some of the real sort of game changers first when it comes to sort of lifestyle and diet? I want to preface it with I'm so I'm a naturopathic nutritionist and one of the most regular things I tell women that I see that they're surprised to hear is diet really is the tip of the iceberg. Um, we can use dietary strategies to radically reduce endo symptoms. We can use dietary inclusions to help you know feed things like a microbiome, your, your gut microbiome, which could then help improve your immune system, for example. But ultimately, if your body is relieved of all the stress that's causing all of the issues. Um, you know, bodies are meant to be resilient. They're meant to be able to, you know, eat healthy most of the time then go out and relax and have a glass of wine and whatever it is you want to eat. It's just while you're in this kind of acute symptom phase that we use diet. And so a lot of women have heard about gluten, you know, and gluten, even if you're not having an immune response, whether it's an intolerance or celiac disease, gluten is very inflammatory just generally speaking, and different women have different, you know, some women with endo aren't, uh, aren't triggered by gluten at all, um, but it is generally a better idea to keep your intake low. Um, dairy just generally is bad for periods, um, for, or for women with period symptoms for a hundred different reasons. Um, a lot of people, women think it's the lactose, which is the sugar component of dairy, but it's actually the casein, which is the protein component, and the cows in New Zealand and Australia and South Africa and England and America produces very, you know, inflammatory form of casein, which, you know, can go on to make period symptoms worse. And so a lot of, so that's why you'll hear like a lot of women with, with any sort of issue, actually even IBS, they'll go to France or, or um, Italy where they're different types of Jersey cows and their wheat fields aren't sprayed with glyphosate or pesticides. And all of a sudden they can, they're eating what they want and they're not getting symptoms. So, yeah, casein in the dairy. And then probably, you know, and out, things like alcohol and caffeine, any sort of stimulant, it's kind of a given. Um, they're just going to fuel things like estrogen, deplete hormones that keep the endo at bay. Um, but the biggest food group I think that's under-recognised, definitely under-researched, is this food, this food group called biological amines. And one of the big biological amines is called histamine which most people think they hear histamine they think hay fever but you know histamine histamine is this compound in your body that plays a really important part in your in your um, immune process but sometimes particularly in women with endo is dysregulated and what happens is 
these cells inside your body called mast cells, they, they release histamine. And one of the things histamine does is it, it can, especially in higher levels, is it can upregulate estrogen, which can then, up, you know, go on to feed endolesions. And then that high estrogen state actually, you know, chicken and egg stimulates these mast cells to release more histamine. And so one of the ways one of the ways that you can reduce your levels of histamine and histamine, high histamine, you know, symptoms are things like pain, fatigue, grinding, clenching, anxiety, depression, restless leg, insomnia, or a lot of the stuff that women with endo and other people are going through. Um, and you can measure your histamine again through a private test. Um, so one of the ways you can limit it is through diet, so either through foods that are really high in, his, in histamine or foods that liberate histamine in the garden. Um, and at the top of the top of that is anything fermented or aged. Um, so all these like fermented foods and probiotic drinks and kombuchas and kefirs and even things like vinegar that women are being, you know, apple cider vinegar and water in the morning is really good for your stomach acid. And these things that the mainstream media are telling all women this is great for your health. Um, you know, there's no one food group that's good and bad for anyone. It's highly individualized. For women with endo, anything aged anything mouldy, um, like I said to you, anything fermented, but even natural foods that are high in histamine, including things like banana and avocado and dried fruit and baby spinach and eggplant and mushrooms. Um, you know, it, a lot of women with endo can get quite a bit of relief by coming off this big food group quite strictly. And what I tend to do is I get them to come off it strictly for eight weeks and then very slowly we just try one thing at a time and a lot of a lot of women can tolerate they can't tolerate a whole avocado but you know they could have a quarter of an avocado before getting a symptom so it's a matter of playing with it because you don't want to be living with this hugely restricted diet your whole life that's no fun (laughs) um so it's just about learning about your triggers so for me for example you know white vinegar which is used all the time in bone broth which is also marketed as a health solution um, worst thing ever for pain. Um, you know, some people, yes, yeah, so people learn about their different triggers, but it's generally those higher, higher amine fermented sort of foods. I have to yeah. say, Alex, as you were describing the, you know, foods that were either um, liberating histamine or high in histamine, in my head, I'm like, oh my God, what is there left to eat? <laughs> you must yeah, well, have so I've made an art form of developing recipes about that if anyone's interested. Oh, um, yes. And that's, why you don't want to, and that's why you don't want to do it long, long term. I mean, and listen, some people feel so good that they do do it long term or they do it every day of the week, but then on the Saturday night they go out and they don't worry about it and they get a few symptoms and they accept that that's just part of their experience with wine and pasta. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it is about balance and knowing it's in. But women who are really severe sometimes just stay off them all together for a while and, you know, it's just up to the person and their mental load as well. Um, but that's highly, highly individualised. Yeah. So, Alex, so outside of the um, the diet stuff, any supplements in particular that are not blanket, but you know that, that you might recommend to ninety percent of the women who come in to see you with endo? Uh, yes. So my favorite is probably liposomal glutathione. So glutathione is the natural compound that all bodies produce in their liver that helps you detoxify from everything. 
Um, and everybody, as you get older, you start to run lower and lower on glutathione. Um, but women in particular with endo, they, they really need that extra boost. To, women with endo generally are bad detoxifiers across the board. And so, you know, that, that glutathione support can help with detoxification um, and therefore the symptoms will get, you know, will reduce and energy and clarity of mind goes up. Um, my problem, my favourite for soaking up that old estrogen that can cause a problem is a supplement called calcium deglucurate. A lot of these supplements are prescription only, so you have to talk to a natural health therapist about it. Um, I use a ton of quercetin, um, especially for that histamine response. Uh, I use a lot of ubiquinol, and you know, there's ubiquinol and ubiquinol in terms of quality, and ubiquinol really is essential for healthy ovulation. And you know, and, and mitochondrial health, so it really helps with energy and stuff too, and inflammation. It's like the master antioxidant. Um, my favorite for inflammation is probably curcumin. Um, and so curcumin is the extract, the potent um, extract of turmeric that they pop in a cap. Also varies between the brands in terms of how effective they are. Super anti-inflammatory, great for the microbiome. It's really warming, so it's really great for like pelvic congestion and thick, clucky blood, which a lot of women with endo always have in the pelvis. Uh, and then proteolytic enzymes is probably the other one. And proteolytic enzymes work by, if they're, especially if they're taken on an empty stomach, they can work by they can work to break down things like old scar tissue and adhesions. Yeah. Oh, so, but I mean, my, the women. It depends what we're looking at. You kind of got to segment what you're looking at so people don't get overwhelmed. But they're and all the B vitamins, of course, as well. And it depends what the test results are and the blood's real and everything else. So, yeah, it's individualised, but they're some of my favourites. Okay, lovely. And I did see that you wrote something to be mindful about with iron deficiency and iron anemia and the, that a supplement isn't necessarily a good idea. Can you just describe just that relationship there and, and what your recommendation is? Yeah. So the backstory is I, I went down this rabbit hole which for which there is a ton of research um, after having two bad experiences myself after iron infusions needing to call an ambulance, <laughs> it, you know. So what happens is so what what happens is with GPs they look at you know iron panels in the blood and don't forget you know that iron that's being measured particularly the ferritin it's only telling you about thirty percent of the iron stored in your body right. Not telling you about the rest. And if you read the research with endometriosis, endometriosis is actually a disease of iron overload, but in the tissues where they can't measure it. And iron by nature is a pro-oxidant, the opposite of antioxidant. So what that means is it's inflammatory, it's going to inflame things that are already inflamed. It's um in the research, it's very well documented to feed things like, you know, bad bacteria which in itself can contribute to these kind of anemic states on blood tests. So it's not a woman can be loaded with bacteria. She can be eating meat and doing all the right things, but she's still anemic. Maybe she's got an infection <laughs> that's just chomping away or maybe her small intestine isn't absorbing it very well. Um, and so many of the also many of the genes that control the expression of endo are regulated by iron as well. So you've kind of got to watch that. And the dysregulated immune system um, with endo impacts the way the iron's metabolized in the body, which leads to increased oxidative stress, and then the lesions get bigger, and then there's more overload in the tissues and more bleeding, etc. And so what very regularly happens, it's not hugely talked about, especially in the medical world, is that doctors will see someone who's anemic. Um, 
send them off for an iron transfusion and these women have it's funny hearing nurses and doctors describe it. They they call it an allergic reaction or an anaphylactic reaction. And actually what's happened is not an allergic reaction. It's this severe inflammatory reaction, a cytokine storm. Um, and women's symptoms can be flared for weeks. Sometimes their periods can get delayed. I hear about those stories every week. It's my dream to go and do a PhD on this subject because the research, anyone can go into PubMed and just type in iron iron dysregulation endometriosis or just iron and endometriosis and you'll see. Um, the information is there, but again, going back to what we originally talked about, there's this disconnect between what doctors know and what's in the research. So, yeah, iron supplements, I actually very rarely give iron supplements to anyone unless maybe they're pregnant. It's probably the exception. But, okay. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. And, Alex, your... Um, Obviously, that's the diet side of things. Do you know what? I always worry isn't the right word, but I'm I'm mindful of of things around like a moldy house or a moldy office or a job that is really stressful. Like these things really contribute to our, our sort of health status. Yet oftentimes there's not a lot that someone can do about these big things. Like so how do you approach that in your clinic, in your practice? So my philosophy is the number one most important thing about everything that they find out that's driving their endo symptoms, that they don't get stressed about it. And if they feel like it's going to be stressful, they intel- <laughs> what I learned in a meditation class once upon a time is that they intelligently forget about it. Um, women can only do the best they can. You know, modern day life, particularly in the cities, is already stressful, particularly women who are working with children. you just got to do your best. Um, You know, and there are always small tweaks that you can do. So you talked about mould, for example. That's a huge deal, particularly if you own a house, it's expensive to fix. If you don't own, you know, the tenancy, tenant protection laws don't exist in this country. Um, The government recognises the problem, but they've done nothing about it, particularly for tenants. And so landlords don't have to do much to fix the problem. So there's only so much a renter can do to kind of modify their environment. And building biologists who I generally refer to, they're also expensive. So I, because I've kind of been through all this myself, I'm, I'm pretty experienced in guiding people what they can do and how they can make small changes that could possibly, you know, be helping them. It's just about ticking, you know, slowly little things off the list, even things like, you know, if we're talking environment, like swapping your toilet paper from a bleached toilet paper to an unbleached toilet paper, swapping your toothpaste from a fluoridated toothpaste to a non-fluoridated toothpaste, swapping your tampon, you know, tampons like we talked about before. All these just like little things that won't affect their costs. It's just a matter of making a swap and making a better choice um, that will ease the body um, and therefore potentially ease symptoms. Yeah. No, um, that stress is the big one here. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And I imagine that um, because of what you just said with stress being a major player, that in addition to the diet and, and what they can do in their lifestyle, stress management must play a big role in helping these women sort of navigate their way out. Yeah, it's absolutely massive. And, you know, don't forget stress is, when we're talking about how stress affects the body, we're not just talking about stress in current time, in present time. You know, stress that affected you when you were young or whenever, in, you know, in the past, if it hasn't been dealt with, it's still sitting there in your cells and really you need a skilled 
psychotherapist, somatic psychotherapist, kinesiologist, you know, someone who you can work with on a regular basis to really start to clear that stuff from the subconscious mind. Because if your subconscious mind's loaded with trauma that you're not even aware of, just that alone could be driving stuff. Um, and so that's a really huge part of it too. And so, you know, these women with endo, it's huge. It's not it's not just endo they're dealing with. They're very often dealing with a parasite, a moldy house, hypothyroidism that's been missed by their doctor, et cetera, et cetera, and they have to kind of slowly address them one by one. And I'm lucky because I've got a good network of doctors in Sydney, um, and so I know who to send them to because um, not, not all doctors are as good as them, unfortunately. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I also imagine that a lot of women with endo, not only do they have a lot of what you've just described, but potentially in their everyday life, they may have children and high stress jobs and all these other things, which which will just add to that burden that they then will be contributing to the disease process. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. It's getting if you don't see a practitioner like me, my number one piece of advice is look for ways that you can manage your stress. You know, people talk about meditation. That's great for some people. Some people just need to go float in the ocean. Some people need to just hang out and hug their dog. Whatever it is for you, find it something you can do every day and then find a technique that you can use that when you start to feel that <gasps> stress feeling, you can use to pull yourself out of that quickly because it's that, that you know, sucking the air and stress feeling. That's, that's what's going to cause distress in your body. So learning how to manage that is, is really important too. Yeah, that is such good advice. And my uh, one of my good friends, Cliff, um, who you know, Cliff Harvey, he was the one, I remember him saying that for the first time as well. It's not necessarily the meditation itself that's important. It's the outcome. And we can get to that outcome through doing something, as you said, that just helps alleviate that. That's great, Alex. Yeah, and I will add, there are other things. Like if you don't, even if you're even so time poor and, up, you know, wound up that you can't even get to that point, there are certain natural medicines, for example, a good example is ashwagandha which can de- can literally de-stress you, <laughs> yeah. you know, amongst other benefits. So, yeah, there are lots of different ways. Just you're such a wealth of information. I've learned so much from both having a look at, you know, doing some background research for an interview, but even just talking to you now, this just feels like such a minefield. So I can imagine that someone who's experiencing this or suspects that they are, that they might feel just not overwhelmed or maybe overwhelmed by by everything that we've talked about. Obviously, you see uh, clients. Um, can you give us some information on um, the resources that you mentioned? Like, where would we find these? And and if you do do work sort of just online or just in person, um, yeah, where can we find you and all of your information? Yeah, so my website is alexandramiddleton.com.au. On the homepage, I do have a free guide to women who think they have endo symptoms and how to get diagnosed, and that's quite detailed. Teach you how to talk to the doctor and actually to get the diagnosis, which is super important. Um, I also run a, a Conquer Endo Naturally program. So it's an initial five-month program. A lot of women just keep renewing it with me. Um, and I developed the program. It doesn't actually differ, differ from what I do every day with one-on-ones, but it's a good way to get more resources from me, more time on email, and um, it holds you more accountable. And it's also subsidised, um, going back to the cost of having endo, which can help a lot of women too. Uh, my Instagram is alexmnutrition. I post a lot of good free information on there, and feel free to send me a message anytime you get stuck. I love answering questions. 
and that's yeah that's really it anytime just throw me an email or a message Alex, thank you so much. This has been great. And we will put links to your uh, social media handles and, of course, your website in the show notes. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Alright team, hopefully you enjoyed that and absolutely share this episode with anyone that you feel would really benefit from the information that Alex has provided us. That would be amazing. Next week on the podcast, I'm super stoked to bring to you the conversation that I have with Alan Aragon, who is an absolute guru in this nutrition space. I have been following him basically forever. Until then though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, where in addition to signing up to my weekly email or my recipe portal access for just $12 a month, you can book a one-on-one consult with me. Until next week, team, have a great week. See you then.